Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Numbers, chapter 13 today. Numbers 13, as we continue our study of God's great acts of bringing his people from Egypt to Canaan. <clears throat> you know, it's quite commonly believed that the witness testimony is the, uh, the most accurate thing that you could ever find. Certainly more accurate than mere circumstantial evidence. But legal experts know that it's not really that simple. People don't always see what they think they saw. In fact, we all experience that at some time in our lives, I suspect. People seeing what they wanted to see or what they expected to see, not what was really there. Or two people seeing exactly the same thing, but their reports being quite different. Well, they saw things through different eyes, influenced by different presuppositions. Well, the account that we find in our text this morning is a classic example of that difference in perception. We've come into the story of the 12 spies who went up to spy out the land of Canaan. But they saw it quite differently from one another. Let's read it. Chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palte, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Zodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, tribe of Joseph, Gedai, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Emil, son of Gamalai. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Zabi, son of Voshi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, son of Maki. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses came, gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev on to the hill country, and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Libo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahamin, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eskal, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some palm granites and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eskal because of the cluster of grapes and the, Israel, the, the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. 
Then they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses the account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. And they said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That's not the end of the story, but that's as far as we'll get to this week. It goes on in chapter 14. One of the most powerful truths that this text forces upon us is the fact that being in the majority, going along with the prevailing opinion, can be disastrous to our souls. In this whole incident in chapter 13 and 14, uh, there are about 600,000 people involved, the, the whole of the people, Israel, uh, and, and Moses and Aaron, their leaders, and of course the 12 spies. And in all of that number, four are right. Caleb, Joshua, Moses, and Aaron. There's no safety in being in the majority when it comes to doing God's will. What matters is that we have it right whatever others might do. So as we pursue faithfulness to the Lord, how can we be more like Caleb and Joshua who had it right? Well, this morning I would like to suggest three things, three exhortations that we would get from them. The first is this, pay attention to God's promises. Pay attention to God's promises. You know, if the tragedy surrounding this hurricane teaches us anything, it teaches us to pay attention to things that we know. We can get used, so used to certain sounds, whether they're warnings or promises, that they no longer mean anything. We, we throw the words around and they mean nothing. And we find ourselves totally unprepared for what may come. If we want to watch out for ourselves, we have to be paying attention. So here, we learn from these Hebrew spies to pay attention to God's promises. The Lord was clearly on record as having promised the land of Canaan to the Israelites. God first made that promise over 600 years earlier to Abraham. And then when the Lord met Moses in the, burning bu- in the, in the incident of the burning bush, uh, the Lord promised Moses again that he was going to do this, give the land of Canaan to his people. And several times through the events recorded in the book of Exodus, Moses related to the people this promise of God, I will deliver you from Egypt. I will bring you into the land of Canaan, which I will give you. Indeed, this chapter begins with God saying it again. The Lord said to Moses, send some to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. There's no question what God had promised. No question about his will in this matter. God promised to give this land to his people. But they weren't paying attention to those promises. 
As we read the account, it's as if the ten spies had never heard those promises. Sir Caleb and Joshua had, but the other ten that carried the day. It's as if they never heard those promises. Actually, it begins before verse 1. In Deuteronomy 1, Moses tells us about this same incident and fills in some of the details. Let me read a little bit from Deuteronomy 1. Moses said, See, the Lord your God has given you the land. There's the promise. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send some men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring a report about the route we are to take in the towns we will come to. You see, God's first command was not to go send spies. God's first command was go take the land like I promised you. Sending the spies was the idea of those who did not take seriously God's promises. Wanted to check it out first. And sure enough, when the spies went up in the land, and when they returned, that sense of God's promise to give them the land was gone. We see it if we look down to verse 27. Listen to the words which the spies brought back. We went into the land to which you sent us. Not the land that God promised to give us, which is the way the Bible has talked about this for chapters. We went to the land where you sent us to go, Moses. These are people who are not paying attention to God's promises. They knew the familiar words, but the words meant nothing to them anymore. Folks, I hate to say it, this is the story of modern Christianity. We have the language down pat. In fact, we have this code. We identify one another, other Christians, by having the right cliches. We recognize the language. But does the language mean anything? Do the promises of God which we mouth hold any weight? Do we really believe what we confess so blithely? Has our Christian language taken root in our lives? Are we actually paying attention to what God promised? Let me give you some examples. God promises that in Christ, he is reconciling the world to himself. He promises that in Christ, we are nothing less than part of a whole new creation. In Christ, all condemnation is gone. In Christ, sins are forgiven. We're redeemed. We become the children of the living God. God promises that in Christ, we can approach him with boldness and confidence. In Christ, he will give us the strength to do everything he commands us to do. He promises to give us wisdom for the asking, to preserve us in times of trouble in this wicked world, and to take us to glory. Indeed, God promises that in Christ we have eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth. God's promises concerning the gospel. So how is it possible that we might claim to believe these things, but be unwilling to rise up and follow Christ, whatever the cost. How is it possible that we might mouth those radical promises of God and live just like a wicked world that doesn't believe any of those things? How is it possible that we might repeat those promises week after week in songs and prayers, but when obedience to Christ is uncomfortable, when it doesn't feel right, that we would turn and walk away. This morning I call you to pay attention, to take seriously God's promises. 
to dare to believe what he says. Most of these spies did not. And were lost because of it. Then there's a second exhortation that follows right on the heels of the first. And that's this. Don't miss God's faithfulness. Don't miss God's faithfulness. There's a widespread notion around that faith is like a blind leap into the dark. How would you know if the promises you were relying on were actually true? Who in his right mind would just leap into the dark because somebody said, jump! But faith is not just a blind leap into the dark. Faith is a step that we take Believing what God said beyond what we can see and prove. But this step of faith is made on the basis of many other steps by many people over many years in which God demonstrated his faithfulness time and time and time again. And on the basis of that knowledge of his faithfulness, we dare to take a step because he said so though we can't prove that it will work. So if we would walk in the faith of Caleb and Joshua, we must not miss that record of God's faithfulness. But that's what the ten unbelieving spies did. They missed God's faithfulness. Let Let me just remind you of some places where we see that here. They forgot what they had seen God do in Egypt. There, in spite of Pharaoh's unrivaled power, God brought him to his knees through a series of miraculous plagues. There, in spite of uh, of Pharaoh's unrelenting determination to keep Israel enslaved, God released them all in one night. There, trapped between Pharaoh and the sea, when their escape seemed impossible, God parted the Red Sea and they walked out on dry land. But now, as they look at the challenges of what's ahead, They forgot all about God's faithfulness in Egypt. They also forgot God's more recent faithfulness to them in the wilderness. When there was only bitter water, God made it sweet and they drank. When there was no food, God rained manna from heaven. When they were in the desert and they ran out of water, God broke a spring out of a rock. When there was no meat, God rained down quail on them. When they were threatened by the Amalekites, God gave this ragtag band a military victory. But now only a few months later, when they see challenges ahead, they forget all about God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness. Oh, but their most profound blindness, I think, is represented by what they do not see when the spies went up into Canaan. According to verse 22, these spies went from the Negev that's the, that's the name of the area in the south, up all the way up to Hebron, which is the high country in Israel. That's the same route that God commanded Abraham to travel years earlier, claiming every foot that he stepped upon as the possession that God would give him. And Hebron was the place where Abraham had purchased the only plot of land he ever land, er, he only ever owned in that land of Canaan, a, a burial plot for his wife Sarah. There he buried her. There Abraham was later buried. 
There Isaac, his son, and his wife Rebekah were buried. There Abraham's grandson Jacob and his wife Leah were buried. There all of Jacob's 12 sons except Joseph, whose bones they had with them, were buried in that same plot. But in this account of the travels of the Israelite spies all the way from the Negev up to Hebron, there's never a word about that history of God's faithfulness. Let me read Raymond Brown's comments. He's the one who pointed this out to me. He says, Those twelve spies were on ground hallowed by memories of God's faithfulness. Here the patriarchs had lived and loved, walked and worshipped, believed and obeyed. They too had faced difficult and demanding experiences. Life had been far from easy for any of them, but God had seen them through. This very countryside owed its own rich testimony to the Lord's unchanging faithfulness. Surely, in such honored territory, the spies would be encouraged that the Lord, who had helped their forebears, would not fail them. But sadly, although the spies saw the very places where the patriarchs had proved God's goodness, they remained daunted at the prospect of entering that land. When the evidence, you see, was right under their noses, they missed God's faithfulness. In fact, as they came back carrying fruit like they had never seen in their lives, a cluster of grapes so great that it took two of them to carry it on a pole between them, apparently it never occurred to them that this is what a land flowing with milk and honey would look like. This is exactly what God has promised us. As they carry the evidence on their shoulders, they miss God's faithfulness that it represented. And when they forgot God's faithfulness, then faith did look like an impossible blind leap. Dear people, we all know that in our culture, our corporate memory is only about six weeks long. But as the people of God, we've got to do better than that. We dare not miss God's faithfulness. We must remember what he's done. And so we take steps to keep on remembering. This is why we keep our noses in God's word week after week, month after month, year after year. For here we have a record of his mighty deeds. This is why we don't abandon great hymns of the faith. Though new songs make us feel good and they're fun to sing, those old hymns remind us of God's great faithfulness to the people who've gone before us. This is why God calls us to speak to one another and encourage one another and remind one another lest we forget what God has done. This is why we need to be reading Christian literature, biographies of great saints, mission reports from around the world, so that God's past and present faithfulness is constantly held before us. This morning I warn you, it is possible for us to be like these ten spies, to walk through the sacred ground that we live in as Christians in a church, to walk through all the memories of God's faithfulness and miss it. And when we do, 
we like them will be afraid to step out in faith for we will have forgotten how wonderfully reliable the Lord is for those who trust him. This is the exhortation of Psalm 78. Let me read a little bit of it as it's paraphrased for singing in our hymnal. Instructing our sons, we gladly record the praises, the works, the might of the Lord, for he has commanded that what he has done be passed in tradition from father to son. Let children thus learn from history's light to hope in our God and walk in his sight, the God of their fathers, to fear and obey and never like their fathers to turn from his way. Don't miss God's faithfulness or you too will become unfaithful. Well, finally, a third lesson from this failed spy mission, and that's this. Don't underestimate God's power. Don't underestimate God's power. What are you afraid of? Do you ever think what you're afraid of? Be careful what you're afraid of. Because what you fear drives your actions. If we don't fear God more than anything else, we've underestimated him. And if we fear something else more than God, we'll be unfaithful to the Lord to conform to our fears. But only the Lord is worthy of really being feared. The 9-11 terrorists, that's four years ago today, struck fear into the hearts of lots of people in our land and it changed our behavior over four years. Interesting comparison I heard this week though. The terrorist destruction of the World Trade Center devastated 16 acres. The Hurricane Katrina as David stated, thousands of square miles, 90,000 square miles in the federal disaster area. Don't underestimate God's power. It's exactly what these spies did. They feared the wrong thing. They failed to fear the Lord. Actually, we see different, three different things that caused them to be afraid and to let him astray. First, we, we, we read that they focused on the wide diversity of the Canaanites, and it made them afraid. We read it in verse 29. They say, Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. It's as if they were frantically crying, Oh, they're everywhere, they're everywhere, they're everywhere, what are we going to do? But this should not have been a surprise. In Genesis 15, when God made a covenant with Abraham and promised to give him this land, what did God tell Abraham? He said, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim. And when God promised to Moses that he was now going to bring them into this land, what did God promise Moses? I have come to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up into the good land and spacious land that I've given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. 
God knew all those people were there. Victory over them is exactly what God had promised. But when they actually saw them, they were afraid. And they feared all those people more than the Lord and underestimated God's power. Then second thing, they focused on the descendants of Anak and they were afraid. Interestingly, by the way, they encountered these descendants of Anak in the town of Hebron. They should have been focused on God's faithfulness to the patriarchs, but they were busy looking at the giants. Now this name Anak comes from the Hebrew word neck. These are people that are known to be tall. They're big people. But the unbelieving spies actually hyped their existence and their size in their report. If we look down to verse 33, we see that they equate the descendants of Anak with the Nephilim. That struck fear into the people who heard the report. For the Nephilim were people who lived before Noah's flood, who thought to be the offspring of human women and fallen angels. Wow, this is fear-mongering at its worst. The Nephilim are there. Well, okay, let's say they were. Let's say they were this great fearsome people. God had destroyed them in the flood. And even if they had reappeared in Hebron, God could destroy them again. But you see, their irrational fears caused them to underestimate God's power. Finally, they focused on themselves and they became afraid. We read this in the very last phrase of verse 33. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. What, what did they think? Did they think they looked so great to Pharaoh when God delivered them out of there? Pharaoh saw them as slaves. They were human tools. They meant nothing to him. They had no power. But God was not a grasshopper, and God delivered them. Oh, dear people, God has a long history of using the most insignificant people to do his will. Think of Moses with a stick. That's one of the most humorous sights in the whole Bible, in my estimation. Moses with a stick. And yet with his stick, Moses brought plagues upon Egypt. He, brought, uh, he divided the Red Sea. He brought water out of a rock. Not because Moses was so great. He was a grasshopper. But God is great. And later when Israel finally did come into Canaan, were those people, the children of these spies, were they so powerful? Look at them marching around the great walled city of, of Jericho. The walls so thick you could drive four chariots along the top of the walls. And here they march. And what are they doing? Blowing horns and shouting. What a silly bunch of grasshoppers. And God crushed that city. For God uses nothing of the world to his work. Think about Gideon and his 300 men. Well, some have estimated that 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites camped in the valley next to them. Here's Gideon with his 300 going out. Talk about a herd of grasshoppers. God chased the Midianites through Gideon and defeated them that day. Think about the youthful David running at Goliath. 
Talk about an insignificant grasshopper. But David advanced in the name of the Lord who was his strength. And that day the Philistines were scattered. And now there's you and me. And what are we? God has made great promises of his kingdom advancing. But we know the world and we know how awesome and fearsome the world can be. And who are we? We're just less than grasshoppers too. Don't underestimate God's power. He has chosen the foolish things, the weak things, the nobodies of the world in order that the success of his work would be seen for what it is, his work, not ours. All the spies saw the same thing. They all reported the same facts. But Caleb and Joshua saw with eyes of faith and belief that God would do what he said. While the other ten, ten spies saw with eyes of unbelief. And their fear paralyzed them and destroyed them and the people who listened to them. Let those who have eyes to see, see. This morning I call you to learn these lessons from the Hebrew spies. Pay attention to God's promises. He means what he says. Don't miss God's faithfulness. The evidences are all around us. If only you will look. Don't underestimate God's power. Fear God more than anything else or your fears will paralyze your faith. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and pray that we would take it to heart and that we grow from what you told us here. As we meditate on it, as we think about it through the day and perhaps in days to come, I pray that you would cause it to take root in our soul and grow and produce fruit in us according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.